Lord, we do come before you this morning. We confess that we are sinners as we have already, Lord, and we recognize that without your superintendence to us by your spirit, it is so easy for us to read things, Lord, and for them to spring up within us great, like great joy and yet to find no great root. And, oh, Lord, what a great travesty it is if having heard the gospel of your son, that it would not find good soil. So, Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts good soil, that the word of God would root itself deeply there and it would grow up within us so that we, Lord, might reflect upon it in our times of triumph and in our times of trouble, to be humble and to be reflective upon your work in us and through us and to remind ourselves often of the call of Christ upon us. Lord, would you make it so in our midst this day? Amen. If you'd open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's give attention to God's Word. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Last week we began to look at that first verse and we talked about Paul being a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. And so this week I want to come back and begin to look at that next verse along with some of the other ones. We're actually going to come back next week and look again at these verses, but add verse 7 to it. There is so much here and you might not realize how much is here, but hopefully after we've spent three weeks going through these first seven verses, you'll start to realize that we still could keep on preaching out of these verses. There is so much richness here. But what I want to take time to look at this week is the reality of Paul as a steward of grace. Paul will go on to tell us in this chapter that he's a minister, that he's a preacher, but he sees overarching all of that his stewardship, that he is called to be a steward of grace. And so as we begin to look at that this morning, I want us to think about this. Paul is writing to his original readers and to us so that we would be drawn to an understanding of the calling that he had been given. Now you might think, well, okay, great, Dennis. We understand what Paul, what God did with Paul, but we need to know what this does for us. And what I really want you to begin to think about this morning is that understanding what God is doing in the life of Paul is very important for us. It's not enough just to think about the fact that, oh, great, Paul's an apostle. God called him. All these things we're reading. Realize Paul thought so much about what had happened to him that every time he had a chance to talk about it, as we've been reading through these last chapters of Acts providentially, Paul keeps telling, this is why I'm on trial. This is the reality. Not so everybody will get all excited about Paul. 
but so they will understand the reality of what God is doing. Realize last week what we talked about was that Paul says very clearly that he is on trial because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why the Jews are so angry with him. It's because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. So we need to come to understand why Paul sees that as so paramount for us because he's trying to get the Gentiles to have courage. Remember, he's in chains. He's writing from most likely a Roman imprisonment. And anyone who would care about Paul, just like I hope that if any of you knew of somebody, especially one of the leaders of our church, that was in jail somewhere because of his belief and because of his proclaiming the gospel, that we would have great concern, that we would be very worried in some ways about them and their well-being. And so Paul is writing and saying to these folks, you need to come to terms with what I'm called for so that you don't have wrong thinking about my imprisonment, so that you don't unnecessarily worry about me, but rather, as he will tell us in verse 13, you will see that my imprisonment is for your glory. Now, those are powerful words. And so what I'm really wanting us to do and to think about here is to have more than just an acknowledgement or an informed view about Paul, but rather an understanding of what's happening in his life so that we, like his original readers, would live not in fear, but with great courage, that we would not have discouragement, but rather that we would see God's glory winning the day, that we would engage in the battle for the souls of men Just like Paul did. Paul was at war for the souls of humanity. And he makes no beans about it. He desires to see people coming to faith in Christ. So we might say our big idea this morning is this. Paul shows the task for which he was called and urges us to consider it. That we might believe and that we might take action. So the first question we might ask ourselves this morning from this passage is, so how did Paul become a steward of grace? He tells us in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And so Paul has this idea, he says, I'm a steward of grace. And so we might say, well, how did he get that way? How did he become a steward of grace? Well, the first thing that would be helpful for us to recognize is, is that this was a work of the sovereign, omnipresent, all-knowing God. Paul is speaking about a stewardship, an administration of which he's been given access to help bring about. But this is all of God. God has brought this all about. And for those of you who have been listening to Acts the last few weeks, hopefully you've begun to realize that Paul did everything he could to destroy the church. And Christ did everything he could to redeem Paul and make him one of the greatest and prolific advancers of the church in the first century. It's a great irony. Paul, the great hater, becomes the great lover. Because the great lover did not hate Paul, but rather showed mercy to Paul. Do you see it? Do you see the reality of what's happening in Paul? Paul becomes a steward of God's grace out of God's graciousness, not because Paul did anything To deserve this. In fact, Paul did everything that should have kept him away. I'm always astounded every time I read Acts and I read who Paul says he was and what he was like. It amazed me 
God of all people, why this man? And I think that's some of what we're supposed to get. If you can really see how really heinous Paul is as a person, not because his moral character is bad necessarily. He ethically was a good guy. That's what he keeps trying to tell you. I was really a decent human being by any standard the world could create. But the reality is, is I opposed the church. And all that righteousness was for nothing. So we see that Paul is a steward of God's grace. The first thing that happens in his life is he has to become a recipient of that grace. And a grace which is alien and outside of him. Not something he deserves and not something he can somehow get or merit. It is something that comes to him because God is gracious and shows him his mercy. And so we see that Paul becomes a steward of the work of God, namely what they would have referred what the Puritans referred to when they talked about this stewardship was that Paul was stewarding the reality of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul becomes a steward of. And if you begin to grasp that, you'll begin to understand Paul. Paul is a man who is thoroughly enraptured with Christ and his work. He is thoroughly enraptured with the worth of Christ and its benefit to the people who need to hear it to people who are helpless and hopeless. He is extending himself to such a degree that he's willing to be shunned by his own people and put in prison time and time again so that this gospel will go forth. So we need to begin to grab hold of that. This is given not merely, he's not telling us this merely to warm our hearts, but so that the reality of the work and worth of Christ would be proclaimed. And I want us to think about this. We talked about this the other day in one of our leadership things. One of the things we tend to do is we don't think, I think, often enough about the reality of the gospel being something that has happened. The gospel for Paul is a historical reality. This is why he spends so much time talking about Christ's death and resurrection. He wants people to begin to grab hold of the fact that what he's stewarding is not just something that's effective for us, but it's a reality that has taken place in time and space. And he spent the whole first part of Ephesians telling us and concludes in that end of that chapter, look, not only did this happen in time and space, not only was this a historical reality, but the effect of it is cosmic, not just planetary. I want you to understand that. Paul is saying that this obscure carpenter dying on a cross, being put into a sepulcher and rising from the dead and ultimately ascending to the right hand of the Father has had effects that transcend the earthly planetary realities that we see from day to day. It affects them. Oh, yes. But this is having effects in the heavenly realms. And see, Paul wants the Gentiles, he wants his readers, even us, to begin to grasp that in the midst of life's struggles, in the midst of life's triumphs, we never lose sight of the great reality and that being Christ. There is no other rock. God himself has declared it. I know not any. And see, Paul is a man who is stewarding the realities 
of that grace. And we need to see clearly what he is doing. Notice back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, I want to read this to you only to set us up for not only what I'm saying this morning, but for weeks to come. Paul says there in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, you'll notice here that Paul there in chapter one talks about this great cosmic reality. He's going to come back in these verses in chapter three and begin to apply that reality into a very specific way. Namely, that Gentiles are a part of the people of God. And I think it's really important, and I'm not going to spend too much time this week. We'll come back to it next week. But I think it's really important that we see that for Paul, this is a pivotal issue. That Gentiles are included, not as an addendum, not as an afterthought, not as plan B into the people of God. They were always in his purpose. It just hadn't been revealed yet. But understand that he's going to get very specific with how this applies to the Gentiles. In chapter 1, he was cosmic. He was saying, look, this affects so many things. He's now bringing it to a more pinpointed location for us to consider. Paul tells us clearly that this stewardship was something that was given to him. Look at what he says. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Do you see Paul's constant emphasis? And you're going to see through, I don't know how, how much you were paying attention, but as you go back, look through chapter three and see how many times Paul talks about it's given. It's a gift. All these things that he has, this stewardship, is something that's given to him. And so we see that for Paul, he wants us to recognize that God is the one who's at work. This is a God thing, and Paul has submitted himself to God's desire and plan. And again, like I said to you last week, I'm not so much interested in you seeing and going, wow, Paul, the great submitter to God's plan. Here are the five ways that Paul submitted to God's plan. What I'm really wanting you to see is that Paul submitted to God's plan. And that's incredible. Because Paul was not looking to submit. He was looking to destroy. That's what you need to see. You need to first get caught up in the reality of what God has done here. He has taken a man who hated the way, the church, and turned him into a man who would give his life and in fact did give his life to see the church advanced and the Gentiles won to faith. Paul lays this out more clearly. I want to go back. If you can just turn back one book to Galatians. I just want to read what Paul says again. I, I realize I'm stacking this up, but I want you just to see how often Paul talks about his life and what God has done for him. If you turn back to Galatians chapter 1, And I want you to see how Paul is considering what was given to him. Notice that he's very much seeing the fact that this was something giving to, given to him. He's not suggesting somehow that this is something he got from somebody else. And he lays this out very clearly here. Beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. How can Paul say that? Listen to what he says. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, do you hear it? This one who knew I was going to grow up to be this zealous persecutor of the church had already set me apart even before I was born. He goes on. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So I want us to see here. Then he goes, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Why does Paul in Galatians say this? Part of this is because in Galatians, he's trying to appeal to his own apostleship. He's trying to say, I'm distinct. I'm not just a guy who's talking to you about something other people have seen and heard and been taught. I am, in fact, a specific, distinct office as an apostle. I am designated and set aside as to be one who actually writes and proclaims the truths of God not heard in previous generations. And that's our next point then. We might ask this, what is the character then of Paul's stewardship? Paul has been given a call into this work So we see that God calls him in and draws him in to begin to do the things that he has for him to do. Paul tells them the distinct calling to which he and the other apostles and prophets were called. Look at what he goes on to say here in verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this and see, obviously, Paul, I want you to understand this. Paul actually thinks what he's writing is not just a letter. Because see, he's really saying, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Do you hear how Paul begins to say there's a different character to what I'm doing? This is not just your average letter by your average pastor. There's something distinct about this. And I have the privilege of having various letters written by old pastors. I've started perusing through lectures to my students by Spurgeon, which he wrote to students. I've been reading through Rutherford's letters in the past. I've read through some of his. And those things are wonderful and they're very helpful and they're very edifying. But they're not Scripture. Paul says there is a distinct character to what I'm doing that gives you courage to believe what I'm saying. What he basically says is that, in particular, that Paul and the other apostles and prophets are distinct from all their ministers and preachers that come after them. They were set apart. They were distinct. And this might seem like, okay, great, dry, good, this isn't seminary class, and you're right, it's not. But see, what I want you to think about is is that sometimes... The reason why these things are important is that we have hearts that are prone to create all kinds of excuses to not believe certain things about the Bible. He couldn't possibly have really meant that. Or, well, that's Paul's opinion there. He even says so, right? He says, I say this, not the Lord. 
Oh, so that means that I can take it or leave it, what Paul says there. And the fact that it's saying some pretty hard stuff that I don't necessarily want to have to deal with, great. That's Paul, not Jesus. And I've heard people who would say, who would tell you to your face, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they trust Him alone for their salvation, who when they come up against a scripture that bugs them or bothers them, it's amazing what our hearts and minds are able to do with that. We will find wiggle room anywhere we can go. And what I want us to begin to understand is that Paul is not doing this so that we can't find wiggle room. What he's really doing is saying, don't flee from the word of God because that's where your hope is found. You've been set free from sin, not so you can return to it, but so you can walk in a different way. You can walk in newness of life. Don't flee this stuff, believe the authority of it, see that it doesn't come from just a man. It's not just a man's ideas. It's from the very mouth of God. And so it is important for us not just to see this as a doctrine we hold to in the apostleship and things like that, but rather this is a doctrine we have the privilege of knowing for the benefit of our souls and the edification of ourselves and the glory of God and hopefully it drives us and compels us out. Because see, my fear is, men and women, that we, when I get to the last point, aren't necessarily going to take what I'm saying at the end as serious if you don't get this one. You really need to believe that when Paul says what he's saying, it's not just Paul's ideas. Clever, oh, as they may be. No, this is the very Word of God. And as we see it working itself out in the life of Paul, we recognize its character They received insight, as Paul tells us, into the mystery of Christ that had not been given to anyone before them. That does not mean, as some have suggested, that the Old Testament has no idea of the New Testament church. That's ridiculous. There's all kinds of discussion in the Old Testament about the Gentiles coming in. What Paul has insight into is the reality that this is how it's all going to work itself out. It's not that this is some brand new idea. It's rather that the idea was only in shadows and types and forms. It's now coming into full expression. And he, as an apostle, and the other prophets have wisdom and insight to explain it. And he's suggesting that somehow to understand it gives these people hope. And this insight came by divine revelation, as he tells us. It it came by the Holy Spirit. Now then... It was not only preached, but it was written down for us. And again, I just want you to see the benefit that we have. Oral tradition is great, and we benefit from it because we all have. You realize that every church has an oral tradition. There's the history that's been written down, maybe, but every church has an oral tradition that it passes. This is how we think. This is how we do. This is what we process like. And some of that's good, and some of that's not so good. And that's why we need the Word of God written down so that we take what we're thinking and put it up against the standard. And this is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. Now listen to what he says. More sure 
than seeing Christ at His transfiguration. We have something more sure. I mean, you can see Jesus and I can tell you about it. I can tell you about His transfiguration. But here's the thing you have that gives you more surety. This is the guarantee of its reality. The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's just some doctrine to be put up on a shelf and say, yes, I affirm that. We believe in the errancy and the infallibility of the Word of God. Great, now that we've got that out of the way. No, this is doctrine for living if you believe this to be true, then you look at this Bible and you say, oh, my word, I have the word of God right in front of me. And it's more sure than seeing Christ Jesus himself in his earthly ministry. Do you understand what Paul is saying? The character of my stewardship is that I have been called to write down the very words which give you confidence that what I'm saying is true because it's from God and no other. And of course, we have to recognize at some point that the only way you ever will fully be convinced of that is if you have faith. Which, interestingly enough, comes from that same spirit who wrote this word. But the realness of it, the surety of it for the people of God should never be questioned or doubted. This is our word, a sure word. A word that we can put confidence in. And a word that should give us hope. Now, the final point I want us to look at then is what is the purpose of Paul's stewardship? And he tells us back in verse 2. Look at what he says. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Isn't that interesting? Remember the old song, this little gospel light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no. Tie it up with a pretty little bow, no, I'm going to let it shine. Do you hear that the Apostle Paul, what he's saying there is, is that this gospel was not given to me to tie it up with a pretty bow and say, I'm glad I, I'm glad I know about Jesus. I'm glad I've got salvation. I'm glad I know I'm going to heaven. Paul says, it was given to me for you. Do you understand the character of the gospel? Do you understand its purpose? The gospel was not given to me so I could hang on to it and twirl it around and say, wow, look how wonderful and awesome it is. The gospel was given to me so that I could look and consider it for the benefit of others. If you have received the gospel, you are called into mission. Period. The gospel comes to you not so that it can stay with you, but so that it will go from you to others. The gospel is mission. It is a message of mission. 
Jesus came and said, this body given for you. And what does Paul say as his representative? This life that God has redeemed, given for you. I'm in chains for you. I'm sharing the message of hope with you. We have to come to terms with the reality, men and women, that the gospel message is seen in the person and work of Christ. And we are to declare it. It is not something that would be a good idea if our church got evangelism rooted in its system and we got really excited about it. It is the reality that we are not being a church if we are not being, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it, an evangelistic society. That is what we are. Our gathering here on Sunday mornings, what's its purpose? To declare to a watching world that there is a God, right? You get up and your neighbors see you. My neighbors across the street got up this morning and said, headed off to church again, Dennis. Yeah, I am. We kind of we kind of into that kind of stuff. And they laughed and they said, well, have a good morning. And I said, oh, we'll have a good morning and we'll hope that you'll come join us sometime. And we continue to have a relationship with these folks. And my wife keeps she's come to some movie nights and we keep trying to see. What we can. But my point is, is that everything we do as Christians must be seen in the context of mission. We have to start to think like that. I'm not saying that we somehow some of you are great at living out your life. But do you think about it as mission? Are you desirous to see people come to faith in Christ? Because see, Paul says, that's what my stewardship is. It's to pass on this message of hope to you so you'll believe it. Why? So that you can sit on it? So that you can stir it around in a nice pot? So you can hoard all its wealth? No. So that you will proclaim in life and deed the realities of heaven. Breaking in. Which means somehow our lives have to look different than the people around us. Somehow we have to think differently. We have to operate differently. But one of those operations is we start to get into our mouths a message that's constantly got Jesus on our lips. Now we've talked, we can talk about this and we can talk about well, you know, you shouldn't be evangelizing at work. No, but who gave you that job? See, if we really believe our faith, who gave you that job? Who keeps you in that job? Who gave you that spouse that tolerates you? Week after week, year after year. See, what I'm trying to say, men and women, is that if we really start to embody this stuff... We become missionaries because our whole context is I am nothing apart from Christ. And therefore, how can I talk about how can I not talk about the thing that's the most important thing in my life? How can I not talk about the thing that gives me a reason for getting up in the morning and surety when I lay my head down at night? How can I not talk about the one who has spared me the horror of hell? And how can I sit there and watch people who I know are going to hell continue to walk right towards hell and say nothing to them? Especially those who I know and work with, who I go bowling with, who I go hunting with, who I hang out with, who I share water at the water fountain. Think about this illustration. Here I am at the water fountain knowing that out of me is supposed to be flowing springs of living water. 
and I get my drink and walk quietly back to my cubicle or my office or my house and push the garage button and walk on in. How can I do that? And if you think I'm just preaching to you, no. There's many a day that I've driven home and said, I am tired. I have talked to people all day long. I have studied God's Word all day long so that I can go minister to people tomorrow all day long. I am tired and I am worn out. And my neighbor who's hardly ever out is out and appears to be out for a period of time. And I drive up. I push the garage door opener. The garage opens. I drive in like a good little neighbor. And you know, you're, at least in the covenant communities that I live in, the garage is only for going in and pulling out and you're supposed to shut it right back down and I obey. I go right in and shut it and walk right under the house. And I don't want to use a lot of what if stuff, but what if my neighbor was to die today? See, it's, it's not a matter of do I know that God in His sovereignty has chosen whom He will and whom He will not. The point is, is that He's called me to have a message of hope in my heart to give away to other people. And if I don't do that, then shouldn't I have some concern over the fact that I'm not obeying Him? That the very foundation that Christ lays down for us, and that is one of mission, that is one of gospeling before a watching world, that I have failed to do that. What if, men and women, and this may hit some of you really close to home, you raise great kids, you and your family have a wonderful life together, but all your neighbors, when the judgment day comes, you watch them file down into the pit of hell. See, somehow we have to see that the raising and rearing of godly children is not somehow distinct and separate from mission to people who are perishing. They are one and the same activity and we have to be active. That means we don't hide in our little huddles as we talked about several weeks ago. We are called out. We are sent forth to proclaim in word and deed the realities of our great hope. And then when that's what I desperately want to see this church doing and being. Not so that we can be a thousand people, but you know what? What if God wants to bless us to be that big? We can plant some serious churches around this city. See, why is it that we think so little of God? Why is it that we question His ministry in our midst so insignificantly? We just bring it down to a very manageable place. We can manage this reality. But God is seeking to break out in our midst. So, I want you to see that as Paul looks to this reality, he calls us to see that we, like he, have been given the message of hope so that we can share it with others. So that we can live a life of testimony of the realities of God at work. In conclusion, then, I have three things I want us to consider. The message that called Paul, the historical reality of the resurrected Christ, has called us. That message, by a sovereign God, has called us to be part of the people of God through belief in the finished work of Christ. That is the only way we can enter in, is to put our faith and trust in Christ. 
And so everyone in this room that has done that realize it is because of the faithful work of Paul and other apostles that you have received the message of hope and have benefited from God's work through those men. Secondly, as I've said before, we have been called to mission. This is our task as God's people to make disciples. Paul is teaching and preaching so that as more worshipers come in, we would continue to cry out the truth, which is glorious for those who are being saved. And don't forget this, a horror for those who are perishing. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. It's a foul stench. It's a horrible aroma. But to those who are being saved, it's sweet and pleasant. Finally, we have been given the good news of the finished work of Christ so that we might reflect on it, ponder it, because in knowing it, we are not left to wonder or doubt God's goodness and provision for us. See, the importance of us knowing the gospel is so that we would not be people who sit around doubting the reality of God, but rather we would be assured day in and day out, I've arrived at another day and God is here with me. How can I fail? Isn't that the testimony of the Scriptures? If God is for you, who can be against you? How can I fail? Will I stumble? Will I screw up? Will I say the wrong thing sometimes? Will I do the wrong thing sometimes? Yes. But I will not let that keep me down. I will not let that keep me from doing the things which God has called me to. I am undaunted. Jesus loves me. This I know. And I will spring forward into action with that reality always in my mind and my heart. And that is what Paul calls us to do. If we will do these things, this will enable us to move out in mission, in the lives of one another, in the lives of the people around us who need to hear the gospel. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.